You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. So this morning, we will be returning to the book of Revelation for our text. I'll again be reading verses 1 through 8, and so I invite you to read along with me. Revelation 1, verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to our God and Father, to him be glory, dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you this morning for your word. We thank you that you have spoken light into darkness and have provided us with a living testimony of your will for us. And we ask now that you would open our hearts again to feast on your truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, this morning I thought it would be helpful to provide a quick review of what we covered last Sunday. Before we dive into our text this morning, because we covered a lot of ground last Sunday. And as many of you will recall, if you were with us or heard the sermon, we looked at a couple things here in the book of Revelation in chapter 1. One, we looked at the context of Revelation. And then we spent the majority of our time looking more closely at verses 4, 5, 7, and 8. Now concerning the context, we learned that Revelation is a title that's derived from the Greek word apocalypsis, which literally means a disclosure or an unveiling or a revelation. And right away here in verse 1, we learn that the book is the revelation of who? Of Jesus Christ, which identifies Jesus as both the divine author and as the subject of the revelation. We learn that this book is intended for his servants or believers, us, It's made known to us through one of these servants, namely the Apostle John. And finally, it's intended to show us something, things that must soon take place. And then verse 4 tells us the original audience for this book, the seven churches who are in Asia. We also discussed how Revelation is a book of prophecy or apocalyptic literature. And as such, it uses a lot of symbolism. You might have caught that in our reading of Revelation 17 this morning. So for example, Jesus is portrayed as a lamb. 
Churches are portrayed as lamps on lampstands, and Satan is portrayed as a dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and the list goes on. So as readers, this means that our job then is to do our very best to interpret what the symbols represent. And then finally, from last week, I referenced Dr. Vern Poitras with a summary regarding the theme and uh, overall view of what's happening in Revelation. And I think it's worth repeating this week. Dr. Vern Poitras says this. He says, Revelation is addressed to seven churches in Asia Minor, which is today part of Western Turkey. Each church receives rebukes and encouragement in accordance with its condition. Persecution has fallen on some Christians, and more is coming. Roman officials would try to force Christians to worship the emperor. Heretical teachings and declining fervor would tempt Christians to compromise with pagan society, which sounds familiar to our day and age, does it not? But Revelation assures Christians that Christ knows their condition. He calls them to stand fast against all temptation because their victory has been secured through the blood of the Lamb. Christ will come soon to defeat Satan and all of his agents, and his people will enjoy everlasting peace in his presence. So in summary, Revelation then is a call to stand firm in the midst of life's trials and tribulations, understanding all the while that God is moving all of history toward his good and perfect end. That's the context. And this brings us back to our text Last week, I mentioned that I would be preaching these verses in Revelation over the courses of two weeks, and I did that with a purpose in mind. And the purpose is really pretty simple. It's this. My purpose was to provide us with hope when life is hard. That's pretty simple, isn't it? My goal is that what we discover here in Revelation 1 will provide us with hope when life gets hard, because life gets hard doesn't it? So years ago, prior to attending um, here at Tri-State Community Church, I was listening to a radio program called the White Horse Inn. And some of you may have heard of the White Horse Inn or even listened to the White Horse Inn. It's still on today. And during the program I was listening to, one of the hosts said something that resonated with me really deeply. And it stuck with me ever since I heard it. And this is what he said. He said, one of the primary jobs of a pastor is to teach his church to suffer well. Now, hear that again. He said, one of the primary jobs of a pastor is to teach his church to suffer well. And that got me thinking, why why would he say something like this? And then it occurred to me, because life is really hard. (laughs) Right? And as Christians, we are never guaranteed an easy pass through this life. In fact, if we study God's word and if we study Revelation, we actually find the opposite is true, don't we? In fact, last week we discovered that God will often use the trials and tribulations to drive us to himself, which is an incredible act of grace and mercy. The truth is that because of our sin and our rebellion against God, suffering is now part of the human condition. And that doesn't magically change when we become believers. But you know what does change? Our perspective on suffering. 
our hope in the midst of the suffering. And as we discussed last week, the means to finding this hope in difficult times can only be found where? In God alone. So in other words, when suffering comes, contrary to what we think we need, which is a change in our circumstances, that's what we think we need, right? What we actually need is a renewed vision of God, of who He is and of His character and His love towards us. And so as I prepared and studied for these two messages, it seemed to me that here in Revelation 1, verses 4 through 8, we're actually given this vision of God in two distinct ways. First, and this is what we discussed at length last week, it reminds us that God sovereignly rules over all things, including our very lives, and He's ruling it toward His appointed ends. And this is so important for us because it reminds us that nothing we experience in life is outside of God's control. But it's actually part of His plan. Therefore, because this is true, because God is in control and guiding all of history, including our lives, we get to experience grace and peace in the midst of life's trials, knowing that we're not in control, that God is, and He's guiding and leading us. But I don't think John leaves us with that perspective alone. The second view that I want to explore this morning is actually found in this week's scripture memory verse. And if you listened to last week's sermon, you may have noticed that I actually skipped over these verses in my exposition, and that's because I was saving them for this week. So if you look with me again, we're going to start at verse 4 and read through verse 6. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. Now listen to this. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. So the second vision of God, I think, that John is providing for us here this morning is one of unconditional love. And here's why I think this is so important. Though understanding God is in control and that He's directing our lives and that He's moving all the events of history towards His end, is true. It's true, and we are and ought to embrace it. It brings us little comfort unless we can trust that God loves us and is working all things together for our good. What good is power without love? And one of the things I've learned as a parent, and perhaps those of you who are parents in this room will have learned this too, is that my children need clear rules and they need clear boundaries. Because without them, all of our lives would be chaos, right? <laughs> and if you're a parent, you know exactly what I mean. But here's what I find so interesting as Liz and I provide boundaries for our kids, and then as we hold them accountable to these boundaries, our kids actually flourish as a result. Now, this doesn't mean that they're not going to test the boundaries or try to sneak out, out of bounds from time to time. My point is, is that Isaac and Adeline understand that at the end of the day, these boundaries exist for their own good. And so they obey them. But here's the rub. 
This will only be true so long as they believe we love them unconditionally and will never do anything to harm them. Otherwise, those rules and those boundaries just become oppression. At the same time, or excuse me, and the same is true of our view of God. On the one hand, God's sovereignty provides peace in hard times because it reassures us that everything is happening for a reason. But God's love assures us that it is for our good. And we need both, don't we? But how do we know that God loves us? Well, John provides the answer right here in verse 5. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. And this really doesn't need much explanation, does it? And what I love about our church here at Tri-State Community Church is if you've been attending here for any length at all, and if you listen to Pastor Rick bring the messages week to week, you already know the answer to this question. The answer to our assurance is found at the cross of Jesus Christ, where he laid down his perfect life as an atonement for our sins. It's what we commonly refer to as the great exchange. It's our sins for his righteousness. It's that little diagram, that picture that we have on the bulletin board. But notice, not only has Jesus removed the negative consequences of sin, He's freed us from our sins, freed us from our sins by His blood. His love is also demonstrated through the positive actions of making us a kingdom and priests to His God and Father. Now, to make sense of this phrase, I think we should just take a quick step back to the beginning of verse 5, something we reviewed last week, and let's look at what's being said of Jesus. If you go back to verse 5, Actually, I'll start at four. John tells us grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on earth. Now, last week we noted how John is using this threefold description as a sort of progression. So Jesus is the faithful witness, which ultimately leads him to his death. But because he's perfect, what is the penalty for sin? Death. Well, Jesus didn't sin. And so because of his perfection, death can't hold him, which leads to the resurrection and his becoming what? The firstborn of the dead. Therefore, he now reigns as the King of kings and Lord of lords. And this threefold designation that we see here, is commonly used in theology to reference what we would also call the offices of Christ. And I didn't have room in the bulletin this week for our Westminster Shorter Catechism question because Dad picked really, really long songs. But had I had the room, I would have included question number 23. Question number 23 asks this. It says, what offices does Christ execute as our Redeemer? What offices does Christ execute as our Redeemer? Christ, as our Redeemer, executes the office of a prophet. Now I'm going to put in parentheses the faithful witness. Of a priest, I'm going to put in parentheses the firstborn of the dead. And of a king, parentheses, the ruler of kings on earth. Both in his estate of humiliation and exaltation. And listen to 
how Dr. Anthony Carter explains why, why this is actually important. Okay? Why is this threefold office important? He says, quote, As a prophet, Jesus pronounced an end to all of our sin. In the Old Testament, the prophet was the mouthpiece to God's people. As God's mouthpiece, the prophet spoke words of indictment to the people against their sin, and he called them to repentance. The prophet also pronounced the forgiveness and pardon of God. Jesus, as the final and sufficient prophet, has done all of these for us. He came not just proclaiming the word of God, he is the word of God. He came to the world because of sin, proclaimed our need to repent and believe on him, and then proclaimed our pardon and forgiveness for sin. He's the perfect prophet. As priest, Jesus offered himself as the sacrifice for all our sin. In the Old Testament, the high priest was the mediator between God and the sinful people. And as the mediator, the high priest, you'll recall, would enter the holy place and he offered a sacrifice to God on behalf of those people once a year during the Day of Atonement. And then would sprinkle the blood of a sacrifice on the mercy seat. But he had to do this year after year. Christ, as our mediator and high priest, not only offered the sacrifice once and for all, but he is the sacrifice. Like the high priest of old, Christ entered into the holy place, but unlike the high priest, he entered to offer himself, and then sprinkling his own blood, he only had to enter one time. And then finally, as a king, Jesus rules in such a way as to not allow sin to reign over us any longer. In the Old Testament, the monarchy was established for the peace, the prosperity, and welfare of the nation. And the prototype king was who? It was David. No king was ever as beloved as he was. However, we have a king who's greater than David. Christ came in the line of David as David's son, and yet also as David's Lord. He is the ruler of the kings on earth and the king of kings and lord of lords. He rules with perfect justice, equity, and as our king, he has fought our battles and now rules in such a way that sin can never reign over us. So not only did Jesus ransom us from our sins by his blood, that alone is infinitely more than we deserve, isn't it? That alone by itself is more than we could ever have asked or hoped for. But in fulfilling his role as our perfect prophet, priest, and king, he's now commissioned us to join him in service because we're united to him. And our union with him has elevated our positions from enemies to kings and priests in service to his God. And how did he accomplish this? By taking on the flesh of his very own creation. By fulfilling all the requirements of God's holy law and then willingly offering his perfect life at the cross as a substitute for our sin. Which is why Romans says, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, God showed his love that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And this new calling should immediately bring to mind the words of 1 Peter 2, 9-10. through 10. You're going to know these words as I read them. But you are a chosen race, 
a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's that priestly role. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people, a kingdom. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. In making us a kingdom, we remember that as believers, we are currently enjoying God's rule in this life. But we also hold on to a promise that one day we will reign with him in glory. Notice this additional promise is added when the phrase is repeated in Revelation 5. Turn the page of Revelation 5, and you'll see in verses 9 and 10, this incredible vision before the throne, we just sang about it where the question is raised, who is going to be worthy to open the scroll of God's judgment? And then Jesus, the Lion of Judah, the Lamb that was slain, is found to be worthy. And then praise erupts here in verse 5. It says, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and what? They shall reign on the earth. And now, as priests to his God, we actually take possession as the people of God of that commission that was originally given to the nation of Israel. Don't turn here, you don't have to, but in Exodus 19... In verses 5 and 6, we actually read something about God's commission to Israel. We read, Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all people, for all the earth is mine. And listen to this. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now, notice, as I read that, there's a future tense used in Exodus 19.6. You shall be a kingdom and priests a kingdom of priests. But if you go to Revelation 1, it's rendered past tense. He has made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. In other words, this task that Israel was originally commissioned to complete in the Old Testament, and of course they failed, has been faithfully fulfilled in Jesus Christ. That's why it's so important to understand what Jesus has accomplished as our perfect prophet, priest, and king. Because all the benefits we've discussed thus far this morning and all the other benefits we experience as believers are only possible and are now only available to us because of Jesus. And if we ever needed proof of God's love, look to Jesus. Jesus is the true and better Adam. Jesus is the true Israel of God. He's the perfect prophet, priest, and king. Jesus is the faithful witness. He's the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on earth. Therefore, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now, to conclude this morning, I'd actually like to read an article to you that I posted to our Facebook page a couple weeks ago, and it's written by Dr. Ian Duguid. Dr. Duguid, if you don't know who Ian is, is an Old Testament scholar at Westminster Theological Seminary, but he's also an ARP pastor serving in our presbytery, and he's a friend of Rick's. When I came across this article, I just immediately thought it was going to be appropriate for this morning's message, and because it just 
He so eloquently pulls together all these themes that we're talking about this morning. And I am a firm believer in using other people's words when they're better than mine. So, (laughs) they are better than mine. So, if you will bear with me, I think you'll find that this is incredibly helpful. Dr. Duguid says, When Jesus started his earthly ministry, he began by proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Yet nowhere in the gospels do we see Jesus giving a clear definition of the kingdom. The reason is simple. Jesus didn't have to define what the kingdom meant because his hearers were well-schooled in the Old Testament. The puzzle for them was trying to work out how the coming of Jesus fit into their Old Testament expectations. The kingdom of God, or the kingdom of heaven as it's called in Matthew's account, is something that's both old and new. It's a concept as old as creation itself, yet with the coming of Christ, it had arrived in a totally new way. The kingdom of God originates in the very act of creation. The Lord is king over all that he's created, which means that he reigns over everything in the universe around us. He rules over the stars of heaven and the planets. He rules over the earth and all of its creatures. It's a rule that's reflected in the mandate he gave to Adam and Eve to govern the lower order of creation. Yet when Adam and Eve sinned, all of that was lost. The reign of God over creation was challenged by an act of rebellion. Righteousness was replaced by unrighteousness. And the result was that the harmonious relationship of peace and joy between king and his people was broken. However, God was determined to reestablish his gracious rule and reign over mankind. So for that reason, he called Abraham out of the pagan roots and promised to give him a land in which to live. At that time of the Exodus, he brought Abraham's descendants out of Egypt and declared that they would belong to him in a special way. Israel would be his kingdom of priests, his holy nation. The Lord would be their heavenly shepherd and would provide earthly shepherds for them, kings who would rule them wisely. The Lord would exercise His sovereign dominion over the whole world with righteousness and justice for the sake of who? His own people, Israel. But sin challenged the Lord's reign over Israel, just as it had earlier challenged His reign over creation. God's chosen people rebelled against Him and they broke His covenant, seeking other masters in His place. The kings whom God had raised up to lead the people in righteousness instead led them astray setting up idols for them to worship. And as a result, instead of righteousness, peace, and joy, Israel experienced the curses of the covenant, culminating in their exile from the land of promise, because the great king had departed from the temple, the place of his earthly residence in Jerusalem, leaving it undefended against its enemies. Human sin can never have the last word, though. Even as Israel and Judah were being carried away into exile, the prophets announced the certainty of a future new beginning. A new kingdom that would be founded on a new covenant. The days were coming when God would bring into being a new heavens and a new earth, a new creation that would mean a return to Eden-like peace and prosperity. The Lord would once again bring His people up from a foreign land in a new exodus, And out of the dry bones of the past, he would form a new Israel. This people would be led by a new king after God's own heart 
and would even include the Gentiles in its number. Yet this new beginning of God's kingdom would not be immediate or instantaneous. Even after the return from exile, the people found themselves living in the day of small things, trying to survive in the absence of their king. They were warned through the prophet Daniel that the end of the world was not yet nigh. There would be a long, hard road to travel before the reign of the Lord and His saints would begin. The coming kingdom to end all kingdoms would only arrive after an extended and trying period of history. The kingdom of God would start as a tiny pebble and it would grow into a world-dominating mountain. Yet in the end, no matter what the human or spiritual opposition arrayed against it, the kingdom of God would assuredly triumph. When Jesus arrived preaching the kingdom of God, he was speaking against the backdrop of these Old Testament expectations. He proclaimed the arrival of God's rule in a new and concrete way. God himself had come to dwell among men to bring to fruition his eternal goal of having a people for himself. His coming would bring in righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. And in Matthew's gospel, Jesus' genealogy declares him to be the new Israel, the descendant of Abraham, the son of David, the child of the exile. And like Israel, Jesus went down to Egypt as a child and was brought safely out from there. He passed through the waters of baptism and spent 40 days and nights in the wilderness, paralleling Israel's own experience before he ascended to the mountain to give his people the law. Yet where Israel failed in the wilderness, Jesus faithfully obeyed. Jesus had come to fulfill the law that had crushed Israel. Through his death and resurrection, Jesus accomplished a new exodus for his people, bringing them out of bondage to sin and death. And in him, the new people of God, yet uniting together Jews, Samaritans, and Gentiles, became a reality. In Christ, righteousness, peace, and joy in God's presence were once more open to humanity. Yet while the kingdom of God came to earth in the person of Jesus more than two millennia ago, its final consummation remains our future hope. That is why Jesus taught his disciples to pray for the coming kingdom and to wait expectantly for it, even if it were long in coming. God's reign has begun, bringing with it peace and joy for his people, but we have not yet seen the new heavens and the new earth of which the prophets spoke. In a profound sense, with the coming of Christ and especially with his death and resurrection, the kingdom of this world has already become the kingdom of our God and of his Christ. However, we've not yet arrived in the new Jerusalem, which itself encompasses a new Eden and it's drawing all of human history to a cosmic completion. Though we cannot yet see it, the end of the story is sure. The stone has struck the feet of clay of the power structures of this age and begun their final fragmentation to dust. For all their glory and proud posturing, the writing is on the wall concerning the kings and empires of this world. Their demise is sure. The kingdom of God is the only kingdom that lasts forever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are a God who is sovereignly in control of all things. But Lord, we also rejoice in knowing you love us and have demonstrated this love immeasurably 
through your Son, Jesus Christ. Now we ask that you would make these words penetrate our hearts so that we'll be reminded of the hope we have when trials come. And we ask this in the name of our great prophet, priest, and king, Jesus Christ. Amen.